0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available.
2: I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
3: Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. dot org. I'm your host Joe Campanelli, and uh, very excited today to be with uh, Mr. Joaquin Simo and Troy Seidel of one of my favorite uh, cocktail bars in the city, Pouring Ribbons. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much. All right, there you are.
4: Thank you for having
3: us. Uh, I should let everyone know uh, Joaquin and Troy are—they're uh, going to be calling in today. Um, I think this is. The first time I've had uh, two people calling in at the same time. It's my first three-way uh, call <laughs> <laughs> into the show. Uh, Joaquin is over attending the Teach for America uh, uh, this morning, um, doing something really noble. Uh, that's that's awesome, Joaquin. Um, Troy, yes. What, what what would love to meet you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, anyway, I'm just, I'm glad I'm glad that you guys are, are are calling. Really happy to have you on the show. I've been a fan of pouring ribbons for, uh, for since you guys have been open. I've, I've gone many times. You're, you're kind of our, our neighbor, uh, close to La Picho and uh, over in the East Village. And uh, I have to admit, before you guys opened, it, way way back in the day in college, um, I you know I went to school with. Uh, Joaquin, one of your buddies, Alex Day, at at NYU, we were in like the same senior class even. But back in those days, I have to sadly admit that I went to the really cheesy bar that was that was in the space before. And so it was awesome to see that it's actually turned into something pretty amazing. So
4: Okay, so two points on that, then. So you remember it as Uncle Ming.
3: Uncle Ming's, that's the one, uh, yeah. Up
4: on the second floor, right, which was a wonderful place to go, when you were tired of making good decisions.
3: Yes, with and, the, and, there was a stripper, pole. so what?
4: The fact that you knew Alex Day in college, which means he looked like, what, a middle schooler then? I mean, how how young did Alex look in NYU? Because, I mean, I think he just turned 30 now, and he still gets ID'd. Yeah,
3: yeah he's hmm. he's always had the baby face. I think, I think he looks the same as he did then. He just hasn't aged a day. Day, which is crazy, uh, considering the amount of uh, of cocktails he drinks.
4: I, I guess it's because alcohol is a preservative. It,
3: that's it. That has to be it. Alcohol is a preservative. That has to be it. The, the kid carries around apple brandy with him, like and swigs it in the morning. There's <laughs> no joke. Uh, <laughs> so I know. Uh, how, how did you guys? How did you guys meet? How did you guys become? Uh, how do you open up? Uh, like a really. Great place, and how, how did you meet? Tell us the story.
2: I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start with that one. Uh, the way that we uh, became partners in Point Ribbons is through our partnership in Alchemy Consulting, uh, a mm. consulting a cocktail consulting firm that started with um, a few other programs around the country, uh, and one of which I was involved with in Chicago called Violet Hour, and eventually uh, the guys who uh, started that program. Uh, asked me to join the company so that's how I moved out to New York City where uh, Joaquin had also just recently joined the company and then once we got uh, got several projects going here in New York City we decided to open up our own bar and that began Pouring Ribbons.
3: And tell us a little bit more about what Alchemy Consulting does.
2: Alchemy Alchemy Consulting runs programs um, that are cocktail related we've um, Started with uh, different uh, consulting for different brands on different products. Um, some with Diageo, some with uh Pinot Ricard. A, a lot of different uh, perspectives that um, we, we were able to give them from a bartender's perspective. Mm. Down to you know here, here's a new bottle for a new brand. What do you think about what do you think about this bottle and and giving feedback on even the ergonomics of of the shapes of bottles and how they fit in a well, and how comfortable it is to pour, and then eventually uh, that began uh, bigger projects or you know, started allowing them to do b- bigger projects, and then uh, their involvement from the beginning with uh, the Violet Hour and Patterson House, Patterson House, which is in Nashville, and a few other programs um, allowed them to showcase the the complete operations of, of a, of a uh, classic cocktail-based program, and then uh, now Alchemy Consulting does um, a lot of work for you know, continuing with the Violet Hour in the Patterson House, and, um, and now we operate uh, pouring ribbons as well. Very so cool. So uh, we, 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 we do all things cocktail-related.
3: And I, I just did a big event down in Philadelphia for uh, Alex's Lemonade Stand, the Great Chefs event, and uh, Espalone was one of one of the sponsors. And we made our batch and put it back in the Espalone bottles. And I found it was like I was really loving the shape of of that bottle. I felt like that was just a killer uh, bottle to pour out of. Uh, who do you think kind of nails it with with bottle shapes uh, outside of those that you that you've had? Uh, you've consulted on
2: Let's well here you can talk uh, about the, the 86, 86 company.
4: company the 86 company yeah, yeah those guys i mean they, it was a bunch of former bartenders and a couple of former brand people who basically teamed up to to do a lineup of four different uh an opening lineup of four different spirits a vodka a gin a rum and a tequila and one of the things they're most proud of was their bottle shape and it's you know Comes in a leader size, which is better for value in terms of that. Um, and but because the leader can be unwieldy to kind of maneuver, uh, they created a lot of different grips and touch points into the bottle, from like a slightly flared base to a notch in the dead center to this kind of bell in the middle of the neck. So everything there's a lot of very easy ways to comfortably grab, lift, and turn the bottle. It's got uh, markings along the side that tell you what fill level it's at, which is of course an amazing help when you're doing inventory and you're trying to guesstimate how much is left. Well, this one tells you. Uh, yeah, so, so it's I like, is they, it point 0.3
3: yeah. or is it 0.4? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, that that's awesome.
4: Yeah, it's just yeah. nice when you know exactly how much you've got in there. Like, It's a, a tall, easy-to-reach bottle. It's mm-hmm. got sloped shoulders, uh, kind of like rounded shoulders, so uh, there's no hard edges for the alcohol to go slosh back on, so it pours cleanly. And on the reverse side of that, if you're operating quickly in a well, then those sloped shoulders also kind of absorb glancing blows from its neighboring bottles better than a straight-sided glass, which is more likely to shatter. So, you know, and that's an example of a company who looked at it and said, "Uh, aren't you tired of, you know, X, Y, and Z bottle constantly breaking in the well or never fitting or never fitting a speed pour or this and that, and they tried to address all of those things. And so I think a lot of kind of the way those guys did their bottle was kind of how we thought about doing our bar, which was Basically, the partner sat around and, you know, talked about all the bars we'd worked at in our decades in the business that, what are all the things we hate? Let's not do any of those. And so we tried to exclude as many of those things that were not ergonomic or not uh, friendly or that didn't make sense. And we thought about all the places we'd gone and, and all the things we'd seen that we really enjoyed and all the things that we always wished we'd had in a bar. And we tried to include as many of those. I think those guys took a similar approach with the bottle design.
3: Oh, and talk more specifically about about the bar. What is something that, that you hate that you see um, every, you know, many, many bars do, and you're like, oh, we've just, we're going to get rid of that. And then what's something that you guys were like, well, I have a, a creative idea to, to solve the problem, and let's come up with something that, that, that's new and, and very tailor-made specifically to pouring ribbons?
4: If we had two design features that I think are, are certainly just useful every shift— Uh, We put uh, foot pedals on all the sinks, so if your hands have a little egg white on them, if your hands are sticky with a syrup or a liqueur or something, you never have to touch a faucet. You know, you just step down, you've got nice hot water, you can rinse out your hands, you can rinse out your tins, so it's a nice, very efficient thing. And you see it a lot in construction sites. You see it in some, uh, you see it in hospitals, you see it in some bars and kitchens, but it's not as widespread as as I would imagine it should be. Uh, so that's one thing I love. And the other thing is we have very little, um, we have very little back of house. Um, so storage is always kind of an issue for us, but we are blessed with very high ceilings. So we wanted to make use of some of our vertical uh, storage capability, and that meant having to access a lot of bottles. Now, Troy is significantly taller than I am, so you know, he kind of smirks as he goes and he grabs a bottle from the top shelf. But, you know, I'm 5'9", we have staff members that are about five feet, 5'2", five so we knew we had a lot of different shapes and sizes to accommodate, and uh, our, our physical designer uh, for the space, uh, Dieter Cartwright, had a great idea to put steps into the back bar, like just these little narrow steps that are just wide enough and deep enough for you to fit your entire foot. And there's three of them uh, located at three different parts of the bar, and they all have a corresponding place where you can kind of grab a handle or support yourself with one hand hmm. while you hoist yourself up, and you can quickly and safely uh, access some of the bottles that are generally more backup bottles. But you can do that quickly during service rather than having to clamber up some library ladder that it always feels like it's going to start sliding over or clambering up on a back bar and being really undignified about it. So it was a very. Yeah, you,
2: see the, you see this all the time delicate delicate when a when, uh, when bartender's design design in a hurry and he's in the middle of a, a moment he'll end up using the furniture behind the bar as a stepping stool. And so we, that's that's exactly what, what Dieter and uh, Warren Red did when they designed our bar was, mm. all right, if people are going to use this anyway to climb up on to get things, why don't we make that safe? Why don't we make this a, an ergonomically functional thing to do?
3: I think that's brilliant. I, I love that. <laughs> so did, were you guys able to, you know, in this project, get – Every like was this the the bar of your of your wildest dreams and and everything you want to do or there were some things that were maybe not in the budget if you had like if you know if you know everything that you know now about building a bar and have you know an, an unlimited hypothetical unlimited budget like what what would you do that that uh, what what could you do in the dream situation
2: I I think one of the we had we had such a luxury being able to uh, take a take a space and redo it entirely and and as we're starting to see the proliferation of cocktail bartender turning cocktail bartender owners
4: mm-hmm.
2: around the city there's a there's a, a real proliferation of that we you just see more and more um, guys who've been behind the stick for a while starting to mentor their own staff and um, that was a that was a great opportunity to really think about how we would build this bar from the bottom up to do what we do that, you know, that that makes it fast and also, you know, safer and more more ergonomic, less stress on our bodies. And what I, I think I realized, um, because of pouring ribbons, we, we don't have barbacks and our bartenders also serve on the floor. So everybody kind of plays multiple roles, and as I've uh, had to learn how to carry a tray and how to uh, manage an entire room full of people drinking cocktails? As I uh, as I predominantly now, I'm on the floor more than I even bartend now. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's that's the one area where if I could redo a few things, I would I would take a better look at how how to build the build a bar and design it ergonomically for, from the server's perspective. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the the biggest. Uh, ways I our bar is so, our, it's so fun to work at our bar because it was designed by us, um, but none of us really had the, the years of experience waiting waiting tables, Yeah. but I think now that we're starting to do that more and realize the, the crossover um, with those positions that we really need to um, consider more the ergonomics of how how drinks go from
3: the bar to the table. Yeah, it's something that, that we come across at Amphora as, as well, um, where we have a, a big, big bar, really easy to get drinks out to them. But when you have the, a crowded room and you have a few cocktails and you have to get through the crowded room to the other end, what's, what's the best way to do that without, you know... Saying excuse me to fifteen people and <clears throat> hopefully spilling not spilling you know a little bit of the drink and yeah that I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense and a uh, uh, good problem to have that that it's it's busy enough that Absolutely. you know that, yeah one of you, one of you guys has to be you know
2: uh, I mean I think
4: really that. a cattle prod is highly underrated situations so <laughs> I, I don't know why we don't need
2: yeah more it's the trickiest type. thing right I mean when mm-hmm. yeah, a server that's going to bar and needs to needs to bring tables to you know Tens of twenties of people, and so there's there needs to be this nice big spot right at the bar for them to function well. And on a crowded night, you know, people are social and gather around at the bar, and they just like, oh, there's a blank space where I can get the bartender's attention, and so it's just this constant, and you know dance between what is intuitive from the customer's perspective and what is efficient from the server's mm-hmm. perspective
3: So, nice. Troy I, I have to ask you about this and uh, I hope you're not uh, sick of talking about it but I, me and and all, I all of my sommelier friends just absolutely love your chartreuse program it is like the coolest freaking thing in the world i i i adore it i i think it's it's amazing uh uh and for you, those of you guys who don't know and, and Troy can speak about it more but they have a, a selection of uh chartreuse green and yellow and then uh w- with age and if you order one of the more aged ones you get the the fresher one to taste side by side with it and you can mm-hmm. order it even in one ounce, one ounce or uh, pours, I believe, on the older ones. Just a little. Taste. We we
2: most often sell uh, our vintage chartreuse in half ounce pours.
3: Half ounce pours, which is all you need, just a little bit in a time. Uh, how did you get into chartreuse? It is so cool to, and uh, it's so smart. I love the I love the service of it. Uh, I, I I love the chartreuse. You got. I just I, I'm I'm in love with this program. How did you come up with it?
2: Well, uh, well, well. First of all, I'm I'm definitely not tired of talking about it. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so it, it, I, I love this topic. So uh, you, you'll probably have to cut me off at some point. Um, Chartreuse is just fascinating. Um, as when I when I first started bartending at the Violet Hour, there was suddenly a culture of bartenders who truly cared about what was going into a drink and wanting to know everything about it, and that. That was reflected from ownership all the way down to the barbacks. It was let's put on the greatest cocktail show we possibly can, and that meant studying everything that you could about every single brand, uh, every every bitters bottle, every liqueur, every um, obscure historical ingredient that wasn't available yet. When when the, when I first started bartending, creme, uh, creme de violette wasn't even an option yet because uh, it just fell out of favor and there wasn't anybody producing it. So, turn my attention to this classic ingredient that just keeps popping up in all these old cocktail books. Chartreuse. Um, Well, all right, let's let's learn about it, and that started uh, the rabbit hole. It was, it continues to fascinate me. I am, um, I'm I'm not a historian, but I've almost had to be and become one in order and and become a historian in, in French history just to understand. Uh, how this product came about, how why it why it continues, and has had uh, a, a non um, a non interrupted production since its inception, and how it continues to to flourish um, right now. I, I know from the guys who uh, own Chartreuse that uh, the U.S. has taken over as the number number one importing country of Chartreuse. Um, outside of, outside of France.
3: Wow. And and was that the 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 most surprising, was that the most surprising fact that you learned about chartreuse in in your studies or was there something even, even wackier to you?
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's just so, there's so many twists and turns in the, in this, in the story of chartreuse. Um, just, just last, uh, I I think this is, this is maybe one of the cool facts that I've, I've learned even in the last couple weeks, uh, a, a liquor. Um, uh, he's a, he buys himself vintage chartreuse. He's this guy out in London. He sent me a picture of a bottle that someone was trying to sell to him, uh, saying that it was from 1903. So he was asking me if I could help him determine if, in fact, that would be the case. Well, uh, not long after that, the import or the uh, export director for Chartreuse was hanging out at Pointing Ribbons. And he said, well, the, the label, because the label was so obscured and it uh, looked like it had been, I mean, the, the bottle looked like it had been pulled out of the, the, of the Titanic. It was so corroded. <laughs> um, and, I mean, who, who knows where, the, where this came from? It's very possible it was recovered from the Titanic. I don't know. But he said that the, the, one, the one clue that would give you an indicator was uh, if there was a seal on the side of the bottle. The, the the way that the molds were produced when the when the glass was blown mm. uh, it would have been a single piece and therefore no seal along that you know no visible edge along the side of the bottle however if it if it did have that seal then we know it would not be from 1903 it would have to be somewhere around the 1950s and and why? Well, <laughs> was it was it from 1903? From oh, you're still know. in here. <laughs> I don't know if he's uh, gonna have that model, but it, that, that, that's just the type of thing that uh, you know. You 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 think you know a lot, and you think wow. you're an expert in this one particular field, and it just keeps continuing to fascinate you.
3: Oh, that's so that's so cool. Yeah, I well, I. I I, I love this show pawn stars on the history channel and I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but they always like, they bring in an expert and the guy's like, Oh, I'm trying to sell you this like General Gen- General Custard's like original shaving kit. And, and like, uh, he <laughs> like this experts, like there's no way it could have been general Custard it was probably just like a normal infantry man. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I love this kind of stuff. So that, that's, that's super exciting. And, uh, if you could let, let us know. And well, uh, If that bottle was authenticated uh, as as being the the original one, I'd be super curious uh, to find out. Uh, Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty cool. All right, we're gonna take we're gonna take a quick uh, a quick one minute break, and uh, we'll be back with more of Troy Seidel and Joaquin Simo from Pouring Ribbons.
1: Whiskey is a proud sponsor of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If you drink the whiskey that warmed General Washington's troops at Valley Forge, does that make you a patriot? Not necessarily, but it indicates you appreciate that Michter's sets the standard for highest quality, limited production whiskeys. America's first whiskey distilling company, Michter's rich history dates back to 1753, when a farmer in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania, distilled his first batch of whiskey from Hardy Rye. At one point, a master distiller left his family's well-known distillery to join Michter's, so he could be at a smaller, less cost-conscious company where he could make the finest whiskey, cost be damned. Ask your bartender or retailer for Michter's whiskey today. Chatham Imports is the national sales agent for Michter's Distillery. For more information, please visit www.michters.com. That's wwwm
3: we're back on In the Drink. Uh, we're with uh, the guys from Pouring Ribbons and Alchemy Consulting. Um, welcome back, guys. Uh, so when you guys first opened Pouring Ribbons, there was uh, a bunch of press about how the so-called speakeasy era for the New York cocktail scene was was uh, kind of over or ending or on its way out. Uh, and uh, what what was – where do you think that the – New York cocktail scene is going, or or what? What do you think is the next stage for for our evolution in the way that we drink delicious cocktails in New York?
4: I think happily, it's spreading out. It's democratizing in a really beautiful way. Um, I think the reason that uh, part of the press that we did early on was saying this is not a speakeasy. I know we're on the second floor. You know we have a limited street presence. I swear to God, this is not a street
3: presence. <laughs> you know, we
4: kept telling people that. Like, it's not. we're not trying to, oh, stop that. You know, and we, we didn't try to reference the 1920s. Uh, we didn't try to, you know, do a lot of these things. We didn't want to pigeonhole ourselves into any one attitude uh, or any one service style or any one time period or any of that. We wanted it to be kind of a larger, more open, free-flowing space, you know, uh, I think a lot of the bars that people associate with great cocktails, the early bars, when um, you're thinking about Milk and Honey, and you're thinking about Little Branch, Death & Co., PDT, um, Angel Share. These were tiny little rooms. I mean, they were absolutely tiny. So you'd get 30, 40, 50 people in there, and that was it. And they were so small that they couldn't allow standing because it would severely compromise service. Right. I mean, Death & Co. is probably the darkest bar in the history of creation. And their seating for a bar guest or for a uh, table guest are these little black Ottomans. You know, I mean, can you imagine if you had one or two deep at the bar and you've got a server with a tray full of drinks that just took 10 minutes to make and they've got to watch out for the drunk people to their left and then maybe a nearly invisible Ottoman on their right? I mean, it was just, it never physically couldn't have worked. And so, so many of these bars got derided as being elitist and pretentious and precious. And a lot of these rules that they came about, like no standing and under that, really were do much more to the kind of the physical uh, restraints of the space, kind hmm. of your ability to put out a certain style of service within uh, the parameters of this space. So uh, I think those bars took a lot of heat uh, for for doing this for a while, and so I think what what ultimately happened has happened is that there are so many people who have listened to what we've said for years, and basically is you don't need to. Run a fancy bar to make a daiquiri, or to make a great Manhattan, or to make it—you know—you can do this in a pub. You know, it's not hard. You can do this anywhere, and more and more places simply are. You know, so now you're seeing it in restaurants. You can get a great cocktail. You know, uh, you can go to a more casual feeling bar like Mother's Ruin and still get a pitch perfect daiquiri. But you can also get like a Negroni slushy. You know, and it's always very raucous and very crowded. Got Paul and Tad over at the Tipler who have. Serve probably a thousand people or more on a weekend nights. You know, they're putting out thousands and thousands of cocktails, and they're exploring different ways of uh, maintaining consistency mm-hmm. and efficiency and output. And those are definitely some of the pioneers in some of the keg cocktail movement, especially with their work with Mekadito. So, what you're seeing is this trickle down effect. That's really, really lovely because. Again, like we said, this is not some like rarefied art. It's freaking bartending. You know, anyone should be able to make a good Collins. Anyone should be able to make a good Martini. So, if those, if that's your starting off point, there's no reason why it can't spread, and it has. And we're seeing, we're seeing it uh, in little hole in the wall bars. You're seeing mm-hmm. it in, uh, in like big fancy restaurants. You're seeing it in neighborhood spots, and that I think is the best thing: is that it we're you know, you don't have to wait an hour and a half to get into a 54-seat bar in order to get, you know, a good Manhattan, you know, and it's just nice that it's spread to that point. And so I think Yeah, now, I,
3: I th- almost think that it's, you know, it's required of a new restaurant. And I think about it obviously, uh, from the, the restaurant industry standpoint, but if you open up a restaurant in New York City you have to have, and you have a liquor license, you, you, mm-hmm. you, you can't, you have to have good cocktails. Like it, it's not, it's, it's required at this point. I, I can't imagine a place having, you know, that that's trying to be, that, to have great food and great service and good atmosphere and not care about their cocktail program. Uh, and I, and I think that's very cool, but you, you know, you notice that, I mean, as, as a EA I always pay attention to the fact that in, the restaurant reviews, they always overlook the wine program. But really, reviewers really, really overlook the cocktail programs. Like ne- when have you seen a restaurant review that's really like, spoken about the, the cocktail program? And you have so much of your, uh, uh, of your revenue comes from the bar. You put time and effort into you know thinking about them and creating them. And uh, you, never, you never see like, a, a decent cocktail review. I, don't know if you guys I,
4: mean, <laughs> I mean, if you have a, if you have like a seven thousand word review and they didn't say anything about the cocktail program, I, you could be pretty upset. But most reviews are so condensed at this point yep. uh, that I think you know if you have a, if you have someone who's there ostensibly to review the food and they are a restaurant reviewer who's very well schooled in a variety of styles of cuisine, maybe they don't know anything about cocktails. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're mm-hmm. the guy sipping a vodka on the rocks. Uh, you know, waiting for the table to open up, and then they drink wine all night. So, really, what are they going to say about the cocktail program? You know, what are they going to say that's intelligent or meaningful about it? Not all restaurant critics know much about distillates or about cocktails. So I think a lot of them stay quiet about it because they don't know. A lot of them also maybe submit much longer works to their editors who are sitting there going, eh, we're not going to include that. That's a good point. Sometimes maybe this stuff is getting written and it's getting edited out. Um, but I think a lot of it is just space constraints. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of I mean the reviews have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter over the years to the point where you know more people will look at a three sentence Yelp review than they would you know a 10 paragraph New York Times review. And right. you know it's just this notion of people are just getting their information more and more condensed and I think asking a restaurant review to review all facets, of a restaurant consistently and all reviews in detail is probably too much for this day and age i don't i don't know if people would care for it i don't know who the audience would be for it i mean, I would be interested in it but i actually like to read seven thousand yeah <laughs> so you know i, I seek out long-form articles but you know I, I know that's not necessarily where where the trend is going and as reviews become more capsule-sized uh i think that's just going to be uh it's going to become even more prevalent
3: Wow. That is, uh, not what I was expecting, but I think it makes a ton of sense. And, uh, you're, you're having me look at this in a, in a different way. So that, that's pretty cool. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that. That's a, it's a great point. Um, where do you guys come up with inspirations for, for cocktails, especially that you have some really fun names for your cocktails as, as someone who is, you know, Alex's age, uh, the, the Zwack Morris, uh, <laughs> makes me giggle. <laughs> I, 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 I will that.
4: admit, you know, I, I'm on a public forum, so I really do have to be honest. I gleefully stole that name from Jim Romdahl out in Seattle.
3: Okay. Uh, <laughs>
4: Jim, Jim, and I did it with his blessing. I, I did it. I went out there to do an, uh, a little launch event uh, for Zwack and Unicum, and he did a little punch that he called Zwack Morris, and I just looked him at the eye and said, Jim, are you going to be okay if I steal this name? Because this name is going to be on my mind. yeah no. absolutely <laughs> fine. So in that case, the inspiration came from Jim Romnell, and I really appreciate it. Which <laughs> <laughs> is very, very kind of yeah. you. Uh, very, I,
2: very, I think good. I think a lot of the, the ways that we're, we're at Foreign Ribbon starting to uh, get our inspiration from is the more dedicated approach to... Um, seasonality and, and a lot of local produce. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a when you look back at a classic cocktail books, they're they're usually full of, of ingredients that are commonly accessible anywhere in the country. But uh, now that we're starting to have to pay attention to seasonality and 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 local produce, uh, a lot of times we start with. You know, okay. In, during the winter, maybe it's not uh, the, the easiest thing to get flavor out of a blackberry. So, um, what can we use that's 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 going to give us bright, intense, uh, real flavor here in the middle of, of this intense New York winter? And so we, we look at look at a beet and go, okay, I I think I can extract some flavor out of this and make a drink from it, and that. Sometimes the produce itself starts um, starts the focal point for developing new cocktails.
3: That's a really uh, You guys are so freaking smart. I love I love this. I'm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I only ha- we, we're running low on time, uh, so I just have uh, uh a, 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 one last question. I, I'm curious as to where. Uh, what what is in the plans for for Alchemy uh, Consulting? Uh, are you guys working on any new places in New York? Any other cities? Um, what do you have coming up?
2: I think that's, that's a great question. So many irons in the uh, fire,
4: right? It's just some, most of these things never pan out. It's funny because we always have a lot of irons in the fire, and then according to timing or budgeting things, yeah. uh, some of these things work out and some of them don't. We thought we were going to go to Thailand to do a project last year and. The funding for it ran out. We thought we were going to do this cool hotel thing last year, and then they couldn't buy out a union contract. We thought so. It's we always have a lot of irons in the fire, but we're always kind of reluctant to to kind of talk about what they are because half of them just end up mm. going away for things that are so completely either out of our control or out of our realm of comprehension. Uh, we've had projects fall apart uh, what seemed like the last minute, uh, and you just scratch your head and you go, "Did that really just happen?" So I think it's. Uh, I think we're pursuing some some interesting work with some brands, uh, and we're going to be doing that. We're always looking at spaces. I mean, New York real estate is a constantly shifting landscape, so I think we're always kind of have an eye on our space. And we always have a few projects in the back of our head that we think it would be a cool thing to pursue. I don't just want to open up cocktail bars. Uh, so oh. I would really love to. You know, if you find the right space and maybe it's a little bigger, maybe it's a little smaller for the right concept in the right neighborhood, if you think it's the right time, at that point we can start, you know, get our, uh, our business partner in on actually writing the business plan because mm. I can write a cocktail menu, I can't write a business plan. Uh, but, you know, that's why I have a partner. And so he will, you know, he can be the one who starts to do that. But I think a lot of it is just we're always going out and we're always looking around and seeing what, uh, what inspires us. Uh, So, I mean, someone in Charleston just opened up a place that's just fried chicken and oysters. And I just smacked my head when I read that. I'm like, oh, why didn't I do that? Those are two of my favorite things. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) If I could just run a bar that was fried chicken and oysters, champagne and cherry, I would pretty much just be happy. I would be there every day with a big, big grin on my face and be very happy. So... You know, sometimes someone does something else, and you think, "Oh, I'd love to do a version of that, or I'd love to do my own take on that." Um, so, yeah, I, I think we'll uh, we'll keep that file going, and then as we keep kind of shopping spaces around, we'll see what what seems like a good fit.
3: All right, that sounds like a that sounds like a plan. And you have to let us know uh, when if anything does come to fruition, and uh, we'd love to have you back on the show to uh, to talk about that. Uh, uh, thank you guys so much. It, it's really, it's really been an honor to have you on the show. I'm, like I said, I'm a, I'm a big fan. You'll definitely be seeing me uh, drinking some of your cocktails, and, and for sure, ending the night with some Chartreuse <laughs> shortly. Uh, so thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show.
4: Joe, Joe, thank you so much for having us. It was a real pleasure.
3: Awesome, and and thanks to everyone for listening. This has been In the Drink on
1: HeritageRadioNetwork dot org.